0: Hi, welcome to Transformation Talk. This podcast series is aimed at people involved in transforming organizations of all shapes and sizes, how to transform using nudges, nurturing people, so it's all rooted in the human condition. My name's David Lanceville, and I'm a partner in PwC Strategy and I'm absolutely delighted to be here with Professor Dan Cable from the London Business School. He's joined me to share his experiences and research on the topic, particularly in how to be alive at work, the title of his brand new book. Dan's research focuses on employee engagement, leading change, and organisational culture. And I would say, at a risk, that Dan is the leader of a liberation movement at work. How to set your workers free and encourage and pique their curiosity. So, Dan, I reckon that too many of us are dulled, weird, dead at work, too many zombies, robots, potentially, and unhappy, depressed and you said in your book very eloquently that our brains are wired through our seeking system to seek out play, self-expression, and experimentation. Why is it that children, musicians, artists get this? You love music, I know that, you love music. but Why do business people really struggle to get it?
1: Yes, well thanks first for having me on the show. This is very nice. Um, it's a great question. My, my thought is that because we need to not trust where we need to measure. At the root of it for me is this idea that what is natural over the eons would have been relatively small production facilities, and that might be cobblers or blacksmiths or farming, where two to four people would work together, and they'd often be related. And they got to see the whole flow of work. They got to see from the seed to the customer, or they got to see from a piece of leather to a shoe. And I'm not going to say that that is where all beauty existed but I think that that's the soup that our brains were stewed in. When, in the 1900s, we invented big companies, we invented management, a necessary ingredient of scaling up was control. And again, I'm not saying control as though it's always bad or as though it's a dictatorship. I'm just saying that managers, need to be culpable and they need to be held to a standard of delivering a promised product on a certain day yeah yeah and i think that for that reason we set up structures that not only let us push on efficiency and delivery but then reward that extrinsically yeah so work doesn't often end up feeling like play because it's prescripted and we are being evaluated, and if we get it wrong, we get punished.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I talk to business leaders who often go up on a stage and say, "I want to empower my people," and then they walk off it, and literally the email fires off, and it's like, "Here's your next KPI, here's your next target." And it's a control mechanism. I'm just wondering, where, given this sort of tidal wave of, and your book is part of it, I hope of encouraging more empowerment, empowerment and play. Is it going to be a moment? Is there going to be a moment where we suddenly say, "Hey"? Let's loosen up on the control. Is it going to be a crisis? Is it going to be certain leaders taking it on? What do you think is going to be the fuel for for this change?
1: There are some organizations that do just that. They're in full play mode. They don't even have job descriptions. You could even say most startups are this way. Hmm. They really don't have the confined, defined job descriptions that this is the cell in which you operate, and these are the prescribed behaviors, and if you don't hit these targets, then we aren't going to reward you. That's how startups often operate. Mm. Even some very large organizations are fairly lawless, meaning they just say, you know, Valve Software is an example of this, right? They simply say, work on what you like, and they've made, you know, whatever it is, $20 billion um, there in Australia um, doing business this way. I don't think that's going to become the norm anytime soon. What I love is the idea of big businesses thinking small, I love the idea of building pods or centers of excellence where a lot of the individuals understand the full cycle of the work are personalizing the purpose. They're, yeah. they're, they're experiencing the beginning of the work, the throughput of the work, and the end of the work. Yeah. I think that it's really exciting to think about giving people 70, 80% of the time when you do have to do repetitive um, predictable actions, but there is enough time and maybe even as much as an hour a day yeah. where you're just fooling around. Yeah. You're just trying things out and playing. And It's not that that doesn't help the company, but there's a mindset that says that would be wasteful. Yeah. And I think that's the mindset that's changing. It's like a fixed mindset, right? Yes. It's, uh, that's very nice. Uh, Carol tech. Hey, yeah, exactly. Yes. And it re- but it requires a
0: trust, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's like, it's like when you walk into a, in a building wherever you are and you walk in in the morning, say at 10 a.m., Is it that, hey, you just walk in and you do your thing? Or is it that somebody makes a chippy comment and says, oh, having a half day? You could have been having an amazing walk. You could have been doing something that comes up in a great idea. But there's a trust deficit, I'd say, in many organizations. But it's interesting about traditional companies. I always think of startups as the ones who can do this more easily. and I've always wondered whether traditional companies can become weird again, sort of eccentric again. And if I was a manager trying to, you know, I'm running a business unit, I'm running a, a transformation effort, um, and I wake up the dormant people, if you like, yep. that's, what do you do? I mean, it's like, that's pretty scary. Where do you, where do you start? If you, were, if you were somebody like that and you, you've read the book, you've, you know, you've, you, you, you wanted to do this for ages but it feels risky, right? How do you, where do you start? Is it a pilot, is it an experiment? Where do you actually start it?
1: Um, Both of those words work really well, I think. Experiment even better than pilot. Pilot to me implies, we're going to try to scale this up and roll it out. This is our first go. Whereas experiment means we're not even sure what it is yet, Um, but they're both good words. I mean, I think anything that pushes us toward practicing and playing as opposed to repeating a predefined action is what we're talking about. But when you said, where do you start? Why don't we kind of take that seriously and just say, it appears that a place to start is with why. I really think that uh, this is the notion that the leader, the employees would have a collective sense of where we're trying to push and what it solves for us if we get there. Mm. The idea that here's a customer need and we don't really satisfy that need. Let's see if we can. Or here's a new technology that we're just not good at, but we need it to be relevant. Let's see if we can start to get good at that. It takes time,
0: doesn't it? It
1: has to. The brain can't is not it.
0: It's not like the next time. It's not a five-minute conversation. You have to actually get get deep and spend time and... Invite different people to contribute to that conversation as opposed to an order order machine.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, if we take Carol Dweck seriously, the brain is a muscle. It can be worked out and strengthened, but it doesn't happen in a conversation or overnight. Mm. Just like a bicep, if you want to do a pull-up, you have to try pull-ups for quite a while. You rip up the muscle, it gets stronger. If you want to learn a new programming language, If you want to start using social media to get in touch with your consumer base, the first couple of goes won't be seamless. Um, It will feel awkward, it will feel uncomfortable, it will seem to emit mistakes. This learning mindset says, savor that, because that's where the learning's happening. That's where the strengthening is occurring. How do you get the say I
0: mean, you, you talked about psychological safety, both at the individual level and leader level. And, yeah, a lot of companies are- um, they've got loads of stakeholders, investors, regulators, government, all challenging them if they put a step out of place. So- At the same time, you want to create more of a learning mindset, which means you might make some mistakes. How do you actually, how do
1: you combine the two? Mm. They are at odds. I see this as an irresolvable tension. Right. I don't think that it is possible to think of that as an either or. Any big business and probably even medium-sized business will have regulations and rules for sure. That's government imposed. But also they have policy. They have if you've got even ten thousand employees in two different countries or three different countries, there's a certain culture that you think makes you successful. That culture can be crystallized into policies, that this is the way we do things. Those policies can start to feel like regulations, only they're internal yeah, instead of absolutely. external. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a fan of saying we're gonna get rid of all that. What I'm saying is if we treat that as a frame in which we operate. How do we inject the freedom? How do we find the places and the spaces to let people play? The words you used before around experimentation—that's—I um, think that's a really important ingredient in this. Mm. So it's making enough space that people can learn, mm. rather than creating. Procedures that they have to follow through with. That's quite a shift, right? Because in effect, that's
0: the control thing, which is, I, I'd say, and one thing you and I have talked about before is a shift between work being centered on, if you like, graft, process, effort, time serve. And we all need to work hard, right? But how do you shift it to one where you say, hey, you know what the purpose is? You wanna, You know what you want to deliver in terms of the outcomes? And then you give people a bit of space to do it yeah. as opposed to, always checking that sort of insecurity. It's like that straight jacket. It's like a straight jacket on innovation. You feel that insecurity. I walk into businesses and you can tell the ones that have a growth mindset, there's a certain freedom. Doesn't mean they're not as passionate, doesn't mean they're not as purposeful, actually the opposite but it, you, you can sense they're just, oh, who, you know, they're looking at their phones, they're walking
1: around, they're, like, they're edgy. That's called anxiety. Yeah. That's a feature that's that's an of a lot of business, right. I'd say. A threat culture or an anxiety culture. And it's not one where I don't think leaders wake up in the morning and say, how do I suppress the souls of my employees today? I, I don't think they wake up and think maniacally like that, although some do. I don't think that's the trend. My thought is that they wake up and they say, how will I get what I promised to the customer? How will I ensure that the regulators are not unhappy with us? How will I, and so that thinking, while not evil, it's not immoral, it often yields work practices that feel confined and straitjacketed, And that's the balance that has to be resolved or restored. Yeah, yeah. Mm. One of the things I really
0: enjoyed in your book was uh, you talked about self-expression. And you, and I don't want to give the game away. So let's give it but, away. But, but give it away. <laughs> Right at the end, you talk about you, you. You talk about business leaders effectively have a role potentially close to being religious leaders. Yeah. Right. In terms of the sense of purpose. That's right and also playing a role of a doctor in terms of you know, people who have a sense of purpose and meaning are healthier people, both mental, mental health and physical health. Um, it was interesting uh, to see uh, Bishop uh, Michael Curry's sermon at the Royal Wedding, which um, I had to say personally, I was in tears listening to it. It was emotive. It was you know, substantial in terms of the topic. I think people need to listen to it, but there were people in the audience, no names, who were uncomfortable with it. Why is it that Um, business leaders, many of them, there are some exceptions, but many of them feel uncomfortable expressing themselves or taking the role that's a bigger role than just just their day job, whether it's a doctor or religious leader. Mm. Wow, so many great questions
1: there. Sorry, there should have been one. No, 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 it's good. I think that let's start with that doctor-priest thing and then let's move towards self-expression. They are certainly related, but um, the doctor-priest one, I just wanted to comment on it. I think that that is a really heavy mantle to wear. And I think that lots of leaders, I might say, stumble into their leadership through almost um, a form of I was a good salesperson, so I got promoted and then I'm the sales manager, and I wasn't terrible at that, so they made me sales director. And so Peter Principle, here I sit because I'm maximally incompetent. And I'm I'm, I'm not gonna discount that possibility that many of us don't go into leadership because we have the passion to be leaders. Mm -hmm. We were good at our day job and we found ourselves there. So let's not act as though all leaders are coming at it from the same approach. But I can tell you that the leaders that get the most out of people are ones that start with, how can I help these people? How can I serve my employees? And that is not how most leaders approach the problem. And when you just mentioned that I talked about this being a doctor, being a priest, I think that's going to sound plain ludicrous to most of the people listening, so I think I want to put a little bit more meat on that sure. bone. of course. yeah. Here's what the evidence is. The evidence makes it really clear that we work more than we do anything else in life. We work more than we see our families. We work more than we do our hobbies, you know, pretty much what we do in life is we work. Now, the evidence also is very clear that if in life we don't feel meaning, we don't feel that our activities have purpose, we are sick we are more likely to get what are called depressive symptoms. So that's headaches, trouble getting out of the bed in the morning, um, starting to feel that life is a hassle instead of a, an adventure, a joy. We know that this leads to um, heart disease. It can lead to cancer. Steve Cole at the UCLA Medical Center has a number of studies now with Barbara Fredrickson showing that lack of purpose and lack of meeting lowers our resistance to disease. We're sure of that. So that's one thing. Now, you as a leader have the most influence on how your employees feel at work. Whether they feel alive and lit up and meaningful at work has a lot to do with the conversations that you have with them about the why of the work. And I just don't think that's where lots of leaders start. I think, again, to your point earlier, they start with how do we ensure that we tick the boxes of productivity How do we make this more efficient? How do we remove waste from the system?
0: So do you think, I know we're only on the first question, but do you think that in in this sort of construct that the sort of the type A hero leader, is he or she dead or are they going to evolve? You know, the know, the, the sort of the red face,
1: you know, time on the clock, push, push, push. I think that that is on its way out. And if we can say why, I think leaders today need to be able to adapt, listen and learn I don't think that it's possible they'll know how to do all the things that they need to have done. Yeah. The louder they yell about things that they don't know, the arrogance uh, and the ignorance, it won't lead to good results. It'll put people in a fear threat state that will decrease creativity. It'll decrease innovation. It'll decrease play. Yeah. So to the extent that what we need is innovation, creativity, and play... I would say that the blustering, bumptious leader will become decreasingly effective. Wonderful. Yeah, so it's a wonderful news, isn't it? Um, let's go back to... Um, let's go back to your second comment. What was that? It had to do first with the Dr. Bis- lawyer. And the bishop. Oh, the self-expression yeah, point the self-expression. More self-expression is emotional, and so many of us are not taught how to deal with our emotions. They don't have words. Emotions are more powerful, more fast. They're an ancient system. They're an ancient system of motivation. Emotions motivate us to act. Absolutely. And they've kept our ancestors alive. They're brilliant. They're so fast and so smart, but we don't have direct access to them. We don't have words to talk to our emotions, so many of us feel insecure about where they might take us if we let them out. Absolutely, yeah. I love it. Is there more you wanna say about that? I find that that to be something, uh, leaders will need to get good at emotions um, projection,
0: I think. Emotions projection, that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. It's like it's considered a soft skill.
1: Absolutely. Or or
0: dangerous. Dangerous because, they, there's probably stuff that's been, they've sort of pushed down somewhere in, you'll know this more than me, you know, somewhere in their in their brain or their their soul, I would argue. Um, or it's something that, it's not just where they go, but how will people react? It's like if you put people in different boxes, and actually the boxes may be working very well together, you know, the business is working well, but then you give more of yourself. How are going to, what are people going to do themselves? Maybe they do the same. Yeah. And, yeah. and... And I guess the question therefore is how much, this, this comes up with some of the conversations I have with some people I work with, which is how much disclosure is enough? Yep. Now there's not one answer, right? But there's something about expressing yourself, showing your emotions at the right time, giving a, a deeper sense of who you are as a person. Right. If, you, if you're trying to transform an organization, my view is if you don't give enough of yourself, you, can't, you don't have your integrity and authenticity to ask more of other people. But how much
1: disclosure is enough? Oh, that's lovely. It's lovely to remember that if you don't feel inspired, how will you inspire others? I think that's a really nice question. Part of inspiration is emotional. Um, I think that there's a safe ground in between that we might discuss really briefly, which is there is the show of emotions, and that might be anything from excitement and zest and curiosity to anger to fear, because those are all valid emotions and they are motivating states and so on. But there might be a middle ground here, which is the self-expression around who I am at my best, the self-expression of certain perspectives that I grew up with that might be interesting to this conversation, education or um, travels that I've done that might be relevant here, but are unique to me. It might be ideas or innovations that I am just interested in, but I don't know why. I'm just intrigued. I feel a passion around this issue. I I can't tell you why. I just do. And that might be a safer business space in some ways. Maybe those are the training wheels. And maybe leaders that facilitate or encourage prompt that type of self-expression, meaning let 's go on a little journey together where we spend a little time each day or each week pursuing what we feel innately intuitively interesting. What are you curious about just because that 's the word right? You have to have a sense of curiosity
0: and genuine intrigue yep. and and also have the time and willingness to sort of listen, genuinely listen. I, I remember a few conversations both with colleagues and other other people where they talk about their experience either as, you know, as, a, as a mountaineer, as an artist, as a musician. And sometimes they share it in conversations, sometimes in groups. And it's sort of at the end, they are, and we sort of think some of this is relevant to work. <laughs> so I think. so you, peak, you had peak performance in certain moments, they talk about how they manage their energy, their resilience, how they work as team, all highly relevant to work, but they've sort of been programmed to say, hey, that's in a box over here. It's not quite relevant. Even though, actually, if they injected just a tiny bit of it in their day job, wow, it would just seed amazing ideas and energy of the the people around them. That's right.
1: That's another form of hiding from ourselves in order to be rational, cognitive, controlled. Mm -hmm. And I think that those scripts are how we've built organizational life. And it's not as though we have to blow up everything in order to change. But I think it is the case that um, we are due for more self-expression if we want creativity. If we want innovation, we need to be open to an unpredictability. Yeah. And we know that the world is changing faster than ever so that firms have to adapt. To stay alive, you have to adapt. Um, that's where I have this... Um, I think there's a golden age for human emotions. I've got this hope that what used to work in terms of reliability and predictability and control was a threat system of fear. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that that won't be effective. And what's needed is curiosity, enthusiasm, mm-hmm. zest. That is a re. I
0: would say that's a, a reimagining, that's a rewiring of how our organization runs. So thinking about companies that we work with or who are trying to transform, it's not like you set the strategy and you, you set the program up and you have to create the conditions for people to to flourish, to to create, to be curious. And that's, and that comes from hiring the right people to promoting the right people to the, the whole piece. It's not one or two efforts. But you, you talked about um, the, world, you know, the world of work changing. I'll just throw a few other things just into the mix just to make it even more complex. Um, it's, uh, you talk about organizations, but many organizations are working more of the sort of the more flexible gig economy. We're actually, I was talking to one, one organization, saying, hey, we, we, we've got two-thirds of our organization now on sort of more flexible arrangements. How do I create a sense of purpose for the people who might only be working a week or two weeks with us? So how does your That's thesis, how your thesis work in more networked
1: or open organizations? That's right. Well, let's go good news, bad news. The good news is there's going to be a lot of opportunities for self-expression there and a fair amount of freedom, a fair amount of experimentation, meaning that when I am, let's say, almost my own contractor, I'm an Uber driver instead of working within a large organization, a driving organization, even things about setting my own hours are gonna feel very empowered. Yeah. Um, the way that I talk with customers, the way that I dress, the type of car that I drive, these are all self-expression opportunities. If I'm a contractor that's doing a bit of digital work, The hours that I keep, the sources that I use, the programming language that I use, the the network that I go to to ask questions, those are all opportunities for self-expression and for the feeling of freedom, of feeling like a micro-entrepreneur. So I find that to be, I don't know, there's some hope in that. The downside, as you're saying, is it is certainly going to be due on a certain day. It's going to be a smallish bit of work often it might be difficult for me to understand the bigger picture of that. So I have to give more thought to that, but I'll bet if we ran an experiment where we randomly assigned micro-contractors to conditions, some of whom got to meet the end customer and say, what will this piece of work do for you if I do it right? Yeah. And others that don't get that opportunity, they just get a draft, they just get something that says, do this by a certain day, I'll bet you that the quality and the customer satisfaction in the first one where they got to meet the customer first and understand the purpose, I'll bet you it would be higher. I'm just thinking about, I'm gonna take a risk now.
0: I'm just thinking about you, talking about you being alive at work. So how do you create, whether it's doing research with, on your own with, with, with other professors, whether it's giving a talk, whether it's at London Business School, how do you create your own conditions to be alive at work?
1: I've had because, a lot of practice with this.
0: Because, I mean, my, my hypothesis would be there's certain moments where you're with teams and other people, it's quite solitary, other parts. And, and so actually you're gonna probably have to be in a lot of different places, different environments compared to say somebody in a corporate corporate role. Mm but how do you create the conditions? Because you also have moments where you have to really peak perform. You know, you're know, you getting the final draft, the manuscript, the, you know, the presentation, certain management tasks you know you don't have to do, we all have to do them. How do you create your own conditions to be aligned?
1: Absolutely, I mean you have to go up one level. The way it seems that it worked for me was the take on this growth mindset really seriously and behaviorally. So just as a couple of examples, I found that I let myself down at work Um, at least for five years, maybe for as long as seven years, by trying to be as efficient as possible, Mm. I shut off my own seeking system, you could say, Mm. by not teaching new classes and only continuing to teach what I'd already prepped because it was more efficient. Mm. I published in the same journals and on the same topics once I cracked that code and was able to get them published. And that repetitive nature started to feel soulless to me I could watch myself teaching from a corner in the back. I'd done it so many times. Now, I allowed myself to believe, well, that's why they call it work. Of course, it sucks. That's why if it wasn't work, then it would be... A, I allowed myself to feel that way. Now I, for example, I teach new classes even though I don't have to. Hmm. I invent new classes and then I teach them and it's a lot more work and it's a lot more fun. Yeah. It's interesting how you can activate your own seeking system. I try to think routinely about the why of my own work. When I give a talk, I think, if I do this really well, who will I affect and why do I care? And I try to repurpose my tasks and my job that way. And then I think one more thing is when I write either a book or an article, I try to think not just about what will get published, what will be efficient, I try to think about what do I care about the most innately? What am I just curious about? Mm-hmm. And those are things that you can do for yourself to activate your own seeking system and to make work feel more like an adventure and less like a scripted set of routines that I have to push myself through. Yeah. So it's really interesting how... Um, Yes, I'm within a shell called London Business School that encourages me to have a dramatic influence on the way the world does business. So that helps a lot to have that charge or that purpose out there. But within that, it's, it's co-created because you have to be willing to take those risks on. The first time I teach my class, it doesn't go as well. Yeah, I'm not wowing people as much. I don't have my moves down. I'm, I'm more awkward with myself, hmm. but I'm learning, I'm practicing, I'm growing. And so what I do is I talk about with the students as I'm modeling growth mindset with you right now. You're explicit about it. I'm explicit about that. So it's, that's
0: kind of risky. That is risky. But it's refreshing. And, it, and you talking about that, there's a humility there which I think we could all do a dose with. I mean, I'm, I remember you know, f- the first few weeks coming back to work after a break and meaning had to matter more. You know, whenever, whether it's whatever, you, whatever people take breaks for, um, even if it's a break from the week, you know, weekend coming back to work, we have the space to think, why are we here? I don't want to be, to use your phrase, I don't want to commute to the weekend. I don't want to be dulled. I don't want to get to the end of my career and say, hey, now it's time for fun. Retirement. Right? <laughs> and then a lot of people then have a health scare. That's right. Right?
1: That's
0: right. Uh, so I have to say, having read the book, having spent time with you, um, and I feel emotional talking about it now. This this is real stuff. This is stuff. It's not a business book that's going to just be sort of talked about in conferences, this is changing the way people think about work in your daily life. In tr- People trying to transform organisations. Um, it's putting rigour behind it. So there's neuroscience, um, there's experiments that you talk about, there's vivid stories, uh, and it's very practical and real. And I have to say it's, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, learning from you, Dan. Um, I hope it's given listeners an opportunity to reflect on their own leadership, their own transformation, and practically how to have a better day, a week, a month, a year at work. Thank Thanks you so much. Dave.
1: What a joy. Thanks for having me here. Cheers.